the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, this is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host of the podcast along with Matt Bates and Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, and Chris Tilling. And I want to welcome you to the last episode of 2018. Next time we talk, it'll be the big 2019. Um, I want to say two big things before we get started with this episode. And they're big announcements about stuff that's on the horizon for OnScript in the new year. So when we meet again in the new year, we're going to be in a different mode as a podcast, although we're going to keep putting out the same biblical studies content. Uh, So the first big thing is that OnScript is starting a theology stream within the podcast. And so we're still going to have biblical studies related podcasts every other week, but we're also going to have a theology podcast, probably one um, one per month, in addition to those two biblical studies podcasts. So we're going to have a theology stream. Um, all of us who host OnScript have a real interest in connecting biblical studies and theology, and we want there to be more connection connection between them. And I realize that's not everyone's shtick who listens to this. Um, we all connect at different points, but for those of us who host this, it's a it's a really big deal, and we do care about that. Um, so, uh, the second point then related to that is that Amy Brown Hughes of Gordon College is going to be joining us as a co-host to help head up the theology wing of the podcast. And Amy is fantastic. If you haven't heard the episode we did with her a while back uh, with Lynn Koek. Uh, they co-authored a book together on women in the patristic world. Have a listen to that to get to know Amy a bit. And so, Amy, we uh, want to welcome you to the podcast and are so glad that you're joining as a co-host. So keep an eye out for those two things in the new year. Um, so in this episode, I interview Sandra Richter, someone my students love to read. Her book, Epic of Eden, consistently gets great feedback. Um, we're going to be talking about the the very important and timely topic of ecology, and specifically ecology in the Bible, which he's written about and has a book coming out on uh, in the not-too-distant future. So, I hope you enjoy the episode, and again, share the word on the development of OnScript in, in the new year, and we'll see you there. Welcome to OnScript. This is Matt Lynch here today with Professor Sandra Richter, who is Robert F. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. She's the author of The Epic of Eden and the Deuteronomistic History and the Name Theology. She's currently working on a project on ecology and creation care in the Old Testament, which is coming out with Hendrickson. And uh, she's writing a Deuteronomy commentary with Erdman's and all kinds of other interesting stuff. So, uh, Professor Richter, thank you for speaking with OnScript today. Well, for sure. And thank you for the invitation, Matt, very much. Yeah, well, I've been excited to have you. And as we, were, as we discussed before uh, hitting record, uh, I've really appreciated your book, Epic of Eden, because of its accessibility to students and getting them engaged and actually interested in the Old Testament. So, Hey, what an idea. Actually get them interested in the Old Testament. No. I, that that's the goal. So thank you. I'm really glad it's accomplishing that. That's great. Uh, so when did you first become interested in academic study of the Bible? Were there some early light bulb moments for you? 
That's a great question. I actually started off um, in a, a household of, of God-fearers, but uh, very little faith background. Um, I was raised Catholic, but um, not uh, no personal faith at all. So I became a Christian in my teenage years, and I knew nothing about the larger church. So I'd been raised a Catholic kid in a Jewish neighborhood. I didn't know the Protestant world existed. I'd never heard of Anglicans. Um, And uh, my first encounter with the church in general actually was to work in ministry. And so I was in ministry for a number of years, and I was working in a denomination that wasn't real keen on women in leadership. And so we would regularly have these kind of crazy social encounters of the third kind. And uh, (laughs) I had a a senior pastor who I was working for who was kind of in cognitive dissonance. He recognized that I was called to do what I do. I was good at what I do, but he really didn't want me around. (laughs) So what do you do with that? So he um, got me an opportunity to do an adjunct position at a small Christian college And I did not get through introducing my syllabus before I knew that I knew that this is what I had been designed to do. Wow. So what happened in that moment? um, It was a Holy Spirit thing. Um, I had gone to teach the class kind of unwillingly because I loved the church. And uh, you speak of the book being accessible. In in my mind, that's the end game, right? Um, Until... Until a standard layperson can own their own Bible, we haven't done our jobs as academics, in my opinion. So I was working in the church. I was loving the church. I was seeing that as my career and calling. And I had agreed to do this class simply out of obedience to my senior pastor. And I had said to God, okay, I'm open. You can talk to me. And he did. And I loved the encounter. I loved the teaching, and that launched me on the quest for a PhD and moving into the academy. That's great. And your your work ranges widely, um, you know, dealing with ecology and a commentary on Deuteronomy and economics, uh, but it seems to orbit around the book of Deuteronomy in, in many ways, a book you seem to keep returning to. I, that's true. Um, now, I had, a, I had a professor once, and I won't name name him, who uh, he was so uninspired by Deuteronomy oh my. that when he taught intro to the Old Testament, he would either skip it what? or ask someone else to teach it. So, um, <laughs> of what is that professor depriving his students? The Romans of the Old Testament. That's what he's depriving his students of. Oh my goodness! Wow. Why is it the Romans of the Old Testament? Because Deuteronomy essentially is the constitution and bylaws of the state of Israel. It defines the covenant. It defines who they are as God's vassal nation, and therefore in defining them, it defines him, right? So I think Romans does much the same. It gives us a pretty clear pathway for entering into citizenship in the kingdom of God, how to maintain that citizenship, uh, who God is in the midst of it, what his final plans are for us, and, and that's Deuteronomy to the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, I had someone describe Deuteronomy once as the cardiovascular system of the Old Testament. Wow. Or at least the you know, it pumps the Deuteronomy blood is pumped through other books. Uh-huh. Quite a few other yes. books. And, you know. Well and I love that example because if you pick up any prophet, any prophet, 
he's preaching Deuteronomy and Jeremiah especially. Yeah. As you yeah. know. Jeremiah, Hosea, yeah. For years they thought that Jeremiah had actually written Deuteronomy because he utilizes it so heavily. Right. Um, now, there are a couple topics we could cover in this interview, but uh, the one I wanted to really focus on was ecology and creation care, which is a, a key part of your research right now. And and we're in the middle of a global environmental crisis, which, as you point out in the book, has been called the, the long emergency. And, and yet Christians, um, especially, though not exclusively in the U.S. at least, are, are, resi- are many are resistant to that very premise that we're in the midst of that. Are there religious roots to that mm. resistance? This is, this is a really interesting set of questions, um, and, and I can answer it from, from either end. So starting with kind of the popular audience, at least in the States, and I don't think this is true in the U.K., but it is in the States, uh, environmental concern has been thrown in the file folder of uh, democratic politics, in other words, being a Democrat. Um, Whereas in the U.S., uh, there's probably a predominance of Republicans in the general pool of those who would have a high view of Scripture and a, a living relationship with God. So what has happened is that because environmentalism falls into the I'm a Democrat file folder, often people who would identify as Christians think that it must be somehow subversive to the Christian message. So if you're going to be pro-life, and that would be traditionally I'm going to be a Republican, you can't also be pro-environment, which would be traditionally democratic. And I I think that that is untrue. I, I believe very deeply that an environmental commitment is a commitment to the character of God. And so just like so many other issues in our lives as believers, that we have to live under kingdom politics and do our best with our national politics, uh, that's, that's how I approach that scenario when I'm talking to lay people. Now, if I were to pick it up on the other side, and I don't want to talk too long here. No, it's great. Okay. On the other side, the academic uh, progress, a lot of people look at Lynn White's kind of epic making article back in the 60s, where he identified uh, the Christian religion as the most anti-environmental religion that had ever um, come upon the planet. And uh, his opinion was picked up as, uh, as canon. And it was distributed throughout the literature, and there has been this posture in academic treatments of environmental concern that anyone who is sincerely Christian is by definition opposed to environmental concern, and that Christianity itself is opposed to environmental concern. Right. So, um, when you've spoken in churches about uh, ecology in the Bible, are you most often speaking in churches that are already somewhat receptive to it, or do you get a lot of resistance? And and what I'm really interested in here is how you address the resistance. Yeah. And it's funny, because I've spoken on this topic in such an array of venues. I just came back from the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, Evangel College, uh, to be one of their plenary speakers at a symposium on environmental concern. 
um, and the assemblies is uh, historically a blue-collar denomination, and they have struggled with this topic. And the people who organized the conference were given a lot of boundaries, um, and uh, it was a small crowd. Um, then I've also spoken in cattle country in Nebraska on humane animal husbandry and the evils of CEO-led industrial farming, and that was a quiet crowd. Uh, <laughs> and then I spoke uh, a year or so ago in this there's this um, summit meeting that's held in Tampa by Living Faith Church. It's an African American church. It's a small church. Daryl Richardson is the leader. Um, he has discipled his people within an inch of heaven. They're amazing. And so in Florida, in an African-American church, I was called to speak on environmentalism. And we could have had an altar call when it was over. They were so enthusiastic. So I'm always so interested in the responses. Um, so no, I don't typically, I don't certainly don't always speak to the choir. Um, and the pushback sometimes is very strong. I actually triggered my very own walkout at Biola College in oh. L.A. Oh, my goodness. I've never triggered a walkout before. It, like like you, you organized one or no. you, you caused one caused because <laughs> of speaking about this <laughs> I issue? I Got did. it. Got um, it. So I was speaking on uh, the principle of Sabbath as an environmental principle. And the connection point here that once you see it, it's obvious, but you wouldn't, it wouldn't be transparent, is that uh, the concept of Sabbath is the regulated by God life habit of constrained consumption and constrained production. Stop working, stop producing, and stop consuming for 24 hours every day and realize that God is sovereign over this planet. And when you translate that into environmental speak, it's don't take as much from the land as you can. Don't take as much from the financial industry as you can. Take as much as you need and then stop. Stop. And I honestly believe that if we on this planet lived with that mindset, take what you need, use what you need, and periodically just stop we wouldn't have an environmental crisis. Hmm. Now, do you think those students walked out and took a nap? Maybe they went to take a Sabbath rest? <laughs> no, they did not. <laughs> they walked out. Again, it was a political issue because this, and it changes territory by territory. Um, in Southern California, uh, the environmental agenda is pretty loud in regular uh, schooling and politics. And so for students who have a, a high view of scripture and a genuine faith, they already feel embattled. And they, again, have attached an environmental agenda to the Democrats, and they might be the only eight Republicans in their voting bloc. So there was, it was a big, uh, a very big venue, and um, because we're close to Hollywood, it was very well lighted and, um, uh, just the um, the presentation 
of the conference was very professional. And so I actually couldn't see the audience. Uh-huh. So and you didn't know what happened. So, right. So they would come up and ask questions. And when they would ask questions, they would step into the pool of light and I could see them. And the questions were a little edgy, but they're undergrads. They weren't listening last night. You know, it wasn't a big deal. And I realized that they were actually revving up the crowd for this walkout. And then they had the walkout. It wasn't a big group. It was a small group. Um, and then when it was all over, I had other students come up to me during just the private time in tears, apologizing for how rude these students <laughs> had been. And I'm like, oh, gosh, know. I missed the whole thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, now, now, you talked about the, the connection between Sabbath yes. and environmental yes. creation care. So help us see in the text where that, like, what are some places you would go to to make that link? Right. Well, in this new book that's coming out in July that we've talked about, um, and it's coming out with Hendrickson, what I've put together is about a 100, 120-page book that deals only with biblical theology. Because, again, this topic has got a lot of baggage. It's got a lot of political baggage. It's got um, a lot of religious baggage. So, for example, Lynn White, in his arguments back in the 60s, was trying to make the argument that Eastern religions have always been friendly to the environment, and they have always seen themselves as a part of the larger world. And so pantheism and um, ancestral worship, these indigenous religions are... Uh, much more aligned with environmental concern. And he's wrong. Um, Look at India. Uh, Right now, today, the Ganges River system, um, you know, the the, um, UN has named it uh, a dead river system. A dead river system. That right now, one of the leading causes of death for a child under the age of five in India is contact with their sacred river. Uh, the same would uh, could be said of China, which is also embedded in Eastern religions. They have got an environmental crisis of unprecedented proportions. So I'll say in the book that it's neither East nor West. It's not pantheists or monotheists. It's human greed is what it is. It is that posture of there's never going to be enough, so I better get everything I can. Um, so I think the scripture speaks to environmental concern from page one to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation. And I think it speaks to it in a variety of ways. Um, I will eventually get to the Sabbath. Sorry. No, it's um, great. It's good to help. It's helpful to set that context, actually. So when you look at biblical theology as a whole, you're looking at the Garden of Eden, which was gifted to humanity where every aspect of a highly complex and beautifully intricate ecosystem were designed and given to humanity to steward with care. And in fact, the the language of Genesis 2 is that Adam is to serve and protect this garden. So although uh, Adam and Eve are given this beautiful paradise, it never belongs to them. And that is very clear throughout the text. That same idea that these are God's good gifts to humanity, but they don't belong to humanity, they are ours to steward, is championed throughout the entire biblical text. And so when you pick up the nation of Israel and that poor, boring book of Deuteronomy, and you encounter the first landed citizenry of the kingdom of God, so the first time 
the citizenry of the kingdom of God are outlined as a single social unit and given land, the law code of Deuteronomy is full of laws regarding sustainable agriculture, humane animal husbandry, uh, uh, statutes that forbid environmental terrorism, statutes that speak to maintaining the indigenous population of wild animals, and that offer the Sabbath rest to every living creature in the community. Be it a full citizen, that would be the law code of Hammurabi, to um, a mushkenu, you know, a middle citizen, a, a debt um, a, a debt citizen, or a true slave. All of these people are given the Sabbath. And then the book of Exodus actually goes on and says, and not only you, your children, your slaves, but your donkey and your livestock and even the wild creatures among you, let it go. And, of course, the laws of following are built around the Sabbath as well. And there are particular passages that speak to how when the land lies fallow, that gives food and sustenance to the marginalized among the community and to the wild animal. So, um, all the way through the text. We, we have got... We've got a real biblical environmental theology, and we have let others steal that topic from us. And like on so many issues of social justice, we the church are standing by, wringing our hands, instead of moving to the front of the crowd and telling them, we know how to do this. Right, right. Now, um, it reminded me when you were talking about the, the, the Sabbath and the, the emphasis on limiting the account in Genesis 1 is interesting in that respect because you have humanity given dominion in on the sixth day, and then God models rest on the seventh. So, do you see a correlation then between the exercising of dominion and God modeling rest? What, what I see in Genesis 1 is I see an entire discussion on dominion. In fact, I think that that's what Genesis 1 is all about. It's answering the question, who goes where and who's in charge? And um, with uh, the name Westminster in your title, um, Meredith Klein and uh, his framework theory that is picked up by Henri Blochet um, for the evangelicals, um, I'm totally sold on, on that pattern. And so what I see in Genesis 1 is that, yes, God is modeling rest, but he's also modeling sovereignty. And I actually think there's a wordplay between Shabbat to rest and Shevet, the infinitive construct of to be enthroned. And I think it's, in, it's intentional. And I think that the, the, the kings of the Old Testament, when they, David, uh, when he finally defeats his enemies, he is seated and at rest. Um, and so I, I think that that declaration of Genesis 1 has a lot to do with God's sovereignty, which is also rest, but that Adam's sovereignty, and here's the land grant business again. I do think Adam and Eve are given sovereignty over the earth. Um, I am not some of the more progressive political, the uh, political environmental theorists. I do think we've been given sovereignty, but we've been given a sovereignty that is supposed to bend its will to the sovereignty of the Almighty. And his sovereignty values the wild animal, the domestic animal, the earth itself. Uh, a little side note, because um, yeah. you mentioned Meredith Klein. Uh, he's, he's someone who, 
I'd be interested to hear your take. He's like the least published, most influential yes. um, biblical scholar among evangelicals, at least. Um, now, did you have him? Or Okay, t- tell me about Meredith Klein briefly. Okay, so I... Um, I and, uh, and we're taping all of this, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, it is okay. I'm just, I'll just be careful. Um, all right. I love Meredith Klein. I dedicated Epic of Eden to Meredith Klein um, because I had him in seminary. And I went to seminary as a kid who's raised in a Catholic home, who got saved in the charismatic movement around Washington, D.C., in an Episcopalian church, by the way. Um, wound up dropped into a house church and then by mistake wound up in an Assemblies of God Bible College. Wow. That's quite a journey. I I know. I worked in Teen Challenge and then I got my credentials with the Assemblies. So I went to seminary at Gordon-Conwell with that kind of background and Meredith Klein uh, who is a raging introvert he... A raging introvert. Those two don't normally go together. Um, every day he would come to class in the same outfit. He had a beige-colored leisure suit jacket, matching beige orthopedic desert boots, and he would change his shirt um, every day. And he never raised his voice until every once in a while he would get really excited about something. And he would start making this what I would call a hrumfing noise when he'd get excited about something. And everyone in class would know that a pearl of wisdom was about to drop. And one of those moments was when he was talking about the problem of evil. And I still cry when I think about him in Lecture Hall 1 at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And he started hrumfing. (laughs) And he said, you ask me why babies die and marriages fail. I tell you in this fallen world, you should be asking me why some babies live and some marriages thrive. He had such a panoramic view of the great story. He was the first person in my life to put my Bible together for me. He was the first person in my life who explained to me that Eden goes with the New Jerusalem and everything in between is a rescue plan. Everything I've got in Epic of Eden, I have happily stolen from Meredith Klein. I've just put it in more accessible language. Yeah, yeah. he was a bit of a dense writer. He but. was very <laughs> dense and a dense lecturer. And he didn't use PowerPoint. Um, by the time he was done with a three-hour class, the whiteboard would be covered with 16 different colors, completely um, uninterpretable. But he rocked my world. That's interesting. So Rick Watts, who yes. I had at Regent College, oh, okay. and he's done... Uh, teaching for us at WTC as okay. well. He also had Meredith Klein yes. and was very influenced yes. by him. And I met um, quite a few other ple- people. Was Greg Beal, was he influenced by him as yes. well? And um, I, I'm trying to think of all the, the, the people, but he's had such an impact. But it's like other people have gone in and actually published stuff that people uh, can access. I know he had a book, but it was like passed around among students, not really... He had um, a three-volume kingdom prologue, which he self-published, and then he had the Treaty of the Great King, which uh, right. did that actually was, that get... That was probably the one that... His grandson, Jonathan Klein, is editing my environmental book. Oh, really? Isn't that an interesting yeah. circle? And he's Come a Harvard around. grad with um, ridiculous qualifications. Um, but yes, we were all... Um, Ricky Watts was a teaching fellow 
in Hebrew while I was at Gordon-Conwell. Um, Greg Beal was on faculty. And Dr. Klein just, he, yes, he had a dramatic impact. And the reason I tell the story about the outfit and the quietness is if you met him, you would never guess that he would have this type of impact either. You could sit through most of his lectures, and and students did, unfortunately, sit through all his lectures and never capture what he was trying to do. Yeah. Um, but for some of you, it, it really clicked. Oh, my and gosh. And then the pieces came together. And, and, it, and it was. It was, it was like the, uh, um, the tumblers in a lock. Um, now... One of the things that you discuss in the book that I thought was fascinating, um, trying to remember the details, but like, or in your article, uh, one of your articles, is the idea that when we look at the Iron Age hill country ah, in okay. which the early Israelites settled, so this is like the highlands of Judah. Yes. Um, and um, so we think about them settling there and. There, there are a number of laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that are um, that that say that you shouldn't glean to the edges of your field, and you shouldn't beat the last olive off your tree, and you shouldn't take the last grape off your vine. Now, we might have in our minds a people who are, God is blessing abundantly, and they've got lots of food, and so it's fine to leave some for the poor. But help us understand the actual. Situation thank, on the ground. Thank you for asking that question. Um, and again, can I just say that those laws do come from that book of Deuteronomy again, just to make the point. And perhaps it would be helpful for your listeners, too, to realize that there are two major law codes in the Old Testament. And one is Leviticus and one is Deuteronomy. And those law codes address everything from how you're going to handle major administration down to what clothes you wear. So um, the gleaning business is, of course, set up to help the marginalized. And uh, so the widow, the orphan, anyone who finds themselves falling outside the bedav, the extended family of, of the Israelite society. So someone who can't care for themselves. And the great triad of Israelite culture is grain, olives, and viticulture, uh, wine. So this rule would have applied to anything, but um, it's named with those core crops. And... Uh, so there is this Israeli scholar named Baruch Rosen who actually has calculated how many calories it took to provide for the standard Israelite village. And we can tell based on population assessments that the standard Judite Israelite village up in the hill country would have about 250 people. So that already reroutes the way you're thinking. Yeah, these are like little churches, right? So this whole village, 250 people, Rosen did the work to identify that these people are falling millions of calories a year short on their essential food supply. So I did the math and I checked it with Rosen and some other um, uh, Ami Mazar. Uh, what that means is that their hungry season is 60 days a year. And any anthropologist would talk about indigenous people and hungry seasons. 60 days a year, these people have no food. So what, of course, you do is you spread the food you've got out over the 60 days. Um, so you go a little bit hungry every day as opposed to starving for 60. You hunt, you gather, or perhaps you take an extra animal out of the flock, which, of course, is going to put you behind the eight ball next spring. Um, but these people are not flourishing. They're just barely making it. So for a farmer to have the self-discipline after he's done all the labor 
to leave the edges of his field, to not go back over his olive tree again, is a tremendous act of charity. And I also think about American consumerism when I think about this. I have been raised with a posture that I must work as hard as I possibly can all the time. Never stop, you know, never rest till good be better and better best. This is the Protestant work ethic. And this is what Sabbath argues against. And this is what these gleaning laws argue against as well. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was so fascinating just to get down into the details of their calorie intake. Mm -hmm. And it makes you realize like how... Uh, how much trust it would take that this is indeed the better way. Yes. Um, and I think of the Jubilee year yes. as well. I know we're going outside Deuteronomy there, but like, um, you know, don't, you know, have a year where it's a fallow year. And, and it talks about like, even in the fallow year, so outside the Jubilee year of you're not planting in that year as well. Right. So the, the crops from the previous year, you have to trust that they're going to carry you yes. through until the, the plants that you plant after the fallow year grow. So yes. it's, it's a long time. It is. Is that even possible? Well, it is. One of the things that I think Christian theologians have misinterpreted, and in my environmental work, I've talked to a lot of farmers, which it's amazing how many people are champions of environmental concern who've never talked to a farmer. Um, and farmers have a whole different perspective on this stuff, of course. Uh, but one of the things they have said that they've flagged is the law of the first fruits. How much trust does it take to take the first representation of your crop and give it away? How long have you waited for that first tomato or that you know first round of grain? So they've named um, they've named the first fruits. But the other thing they have told me is there's no way that they're following all of their crops in one year. They're rotating. And as they're rotating, they're putting their livestock into the fallow field, which is actually very good for the field. And as you read through these articles in the book, I'll actually talk about nitrogen contents and all of this falderol and fiddledee-dee. But we, we have industrial methods to compensate for these things, but the ancients didn't. So if you don't rest a field, uh, you're going to strip the soil. If you don't let your livestock back in there, you're not going to have all the wonderful manure you need. Um, the livestock also chop the ground up again, and they take the leftover um, silage, and they, they dig it back into the soil, which is very good. Um, and so a year later, your field is ready to go again. But if you don't do that, you're going to wind up, like we do during Hammurabi's reign, with the fields becoming sterile. Oh, that happened yes, for him. Yes, it does happen. And um, what happened is that he started extending the fallow because just like any good consumer, he wanted to get as much as he could out of the land before he let it rest. And as they extended the fallow cycle... You mean like prolonging it? Mm -hmm, or, prolonging okay, it. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, there's a very famous piece by Torkild Jakobsen that deals with this. Um they wound up salinating their own fields because they're irrigating. Um, whereas like down in the Nile, the, the river's actually flooding. But when you irrigate, you raise the uh, salination level and you will remember lines coming out of the biblical text that we conquered them and we sowed their fields with salt. That's intentional salination. 
but it, it renders the soil. Yeah, the Assyrians were big fans of that, weren't yeah, they? They were not Salt, real friendly people. the fields. Um, and environmental terrorism, which I've had a lot of fun with too. Yeah, the Assyrians. The Assyrians are yeah, like notorious cut, cutting down trees and. Now, did a lot of the deforestation in Israel happen? Under the Assyrians, no. or, or was that Roman era, or later, no, it's, or it, it really has been the long story of human habitation. And if we think about the fact that Iraq used to be the Garden of Eden, and now um, not so much. Everything we see on the news is a dust bowl. Um, really, it's it's prolonged human habitation, where sustainable not only agriculture but uh, animal husbandry is not being practiced. So if you let goats loose on any hillside, they will eat everything. And so any seedling doesn't have a chance. They're useful for eating kudzu yes, in I've Atlanta. So uh, they did. They do have a place for their, you know, ravenous behavior. That is, I, yeah. I am so thrilled to hear that. So. Kudzu yeah. doesn't poison so, them? So kudzu, I guess not. Um, it's As you probably know, it's called the vine that ate the south. Oh, I've seen it. And, uh, yeah, it if pulls you go to, down trees. Yeah, like, it's, yeah. it's really awful. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's almost evil looking, you know, the way yes. it takes over a forest. Yeah. And uh, so they've used goats to, because goats are good at, at not only eating it, but rooting out the, the getting yes. to the roots of it. And, and digging that out. That is so, so much better than so goats spraying are good down for 100 eating, acres. Uh, kudzu and for yoga. Goat yoga? I've heard about that. Yeah. Um, so just um, want to take a little interlude here okay. and ask you a few random questions. Okay, go um, for it. It's not a full-on speed round like I normally do, but what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? I, I, I think this is... And there's really, one right answer. There's a really that's a really hard question. <laughs> that's um, why we like it. And in Old Testament, it's in particularly hard. So I'm going to just say for myself, a book that um, rocked my world was Baruch Halpern's The First Historians. Um, he did fabulous historiography. Um, he uh, helped me uh, put together my own historiography. How am I going to approach the text? And even though um, Baruch Halpern is, you know, anything but uh, a conservative or any sort of particular believer, he just did darn good history work. And I really appreciated it. Great. And what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Oh, I think the developmental paradigm that was birthed with Wellhausen must die. And it supposedly is dead, but it isn't. It's like kudzu. It keeps coming back (laughs) everywhere, all the time. My dissertation actually was written to target the second stage of the three-stage program. Um, I hope I dealt a mortal blow to the name theology. Um, But yeah, everywhere I turn, it just keeps coming. Yeah, so I've done a lot of work in monotheism, and that's mm-hmm. another one where the, the developmentalist evolutionary idea of the, de- the you know Israel moving from mm-hmm. polytheism to monotheism in a sort of straightforward, linear fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole, predominant there the as whole well. simple to the complex and the whole idea that Israel could never have thought of monotheism. Of course, I would hold that it was actually revealed to them. That's why they didn't have to think of it, but, you know, that's... Another idea there. <laughs> yeah, great. What's, um, what's been the role of failure in shaping you as a scholar? 
it actually has had a very big role. And I did not enter the academy or, or ministry with that paradigm in place. It never dawned on me that failure would be an important part of success. And I wish someone had told me that. It would have been less painful. Um, so, uh, in many arenas, um, you know, certainly you write something and someone comes back and say, says, hey, there are six books on this topic already. Um, would you like to do a Google search? That's always humiliating. Um, there's, you know, showing up in a section at SBL and presenting a paper and you know your data's good, but the political climate is such that they just will not hear it. Um, and so you don't get invited back. Um, there's communities of faith that are so busy defining themselves by themselves, they have forgotten to find themselves by the text that they hold dear and you wind up being on the outs. Um, working too much, working too hard, um, a thousand yeah. failures. Yeah. So what's yeah. your advice then to someone entering the field who might, like yourself, might not have thought about that as a significant part? Yeah. I, um, gosh, it's a, it's a it's a, d a deep question on many fronts. One, I would say, failure is part of the game. It's it is it is simply unavoidable. No, it's not unavoidable. This is how you avoid failure. Don't ever try to be anything. Um, stay quietly on your couch. Pick a job that no one cares about, and don't ever speak up. And you won't fail. You'll just it's fail. Safe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you're actually going to try to change something, to accomplish something, to follow where he leads, there is going to be failure in the mix. And it's going to come sometimes from very predictable sources. Okay, you failed the test because you didn't study for it. Or a professor doesn't like you because um, they don't like you for your gender, they don't like you for your color, they don't like you because of your religious background. Um, that will happen. Um, but uh, it, it really is the way that you internally process failure that uh, depicts the outcome. And so with every failure, which will come, you say, okay, how do I do that better next time? How do I not do that next time? How do I find someone who can help me with that next time? It's there. It, it's, it's, it's always there. So instead of deciding, I failed, therefore I'm a failure, how about I, how about I failed, therefore I'm going to do it better next time? Yeah, that's good. Can you describe briefly your, um, your workflow process? So how, how do you keep on target and finish things and push through? Yeah. Uh, it's very challenging. Um, especially if you actually like your students. Again, it's kind of that, that failure conversation we just had. Um, so how do you stay on target? Uh, you prioritize. You will always have to leave things dangling. 
and it's really frustrating, especially if you're a perfectionist, which is what got you into a PhD in the first place, right? Um, so what do I do? Um, let me add to the picture that I'm not only an academic, I'm a wife and I'm a mother, and the academy doesn't make a lot of space for that yet. We're getting way better, but when I had my first child, and I'm not that old, um, my institution had never even thought about maternity leave. They didn't have a policy. When they finally wrote a policy, they only penalized me a sabbatical and a promotion. Um, <laughs> so when I had my second... Only. That's all you got penalized that for that. That's all I was penalized with for daring... What a deal. Daring to reproduce. So with my second child, my baby was born on January 29th. I was in the classroom on February 13th. My TA had to carry my laptop for me because I wasn't allowed to carry weight. Um, yeah, two weeks. Um, so, prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. Do not respond to the tyranny of the urgent. Um, give yourself some space to actually think about what it is you want to do as opposed to simply responding to the millions of demands that are dropping into your inbox every moment. What do you, when we think about, um, so going back to the environmental yes. topic for a moment, mm -hmm. we've just got a couple of minutes here. Uh, when we think as Christians about the way that the New Testament contributes to an environmental ethic, we might, some of us might end up scratching our heads mm -hmm. um, because the Old Testament feels so grounded in a place, in a particular land. Um, and we might have grown up with a paradigm where the New Testament spiritualizes the Old. Uh, so not literal fruits, but the fruits of the Spirit, and so on. So how does the New Testament keep us grounded, and how does it contribute to an environmental ethic? And there will be a chapter in this book about this topic, um, because a lot of folks uh, truly believe that environmentalism is, is not only foreign to the biblical text, but especially with the New Testament, is is a contradiction to the biblical text that we have a limited amount of time there are souls that need to be saved uh utilize every resource at, at hand don't just stand there hugging trees exactly get out there and save souls and and let the other stuff take care of itself and know that in the final eschaton the world is going to be rolled up like a scroll. It's going to be um, burn up uh, into, you know, non-existence. And, and these passages can be found in Thessalonians and in Peter and in the book of Revelation. And w I think a lot of really good folk have innocently just assumed that the world is going to be burned up. So there's no reason to take care of it. It's sad. You know, it's sad what we're doing to the planet, but God's going to just give us a brand new one. And I direct the reader to Romans chapter 8, where in verse 28, Paul, Paul, who was, you know, a big tree hugger, um, says to us that the entire creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth um, up to this very day, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Because on that day, creation itself will be delivered from the futility that it's been subject to because of Adam's choice. So Paul is telling us that the revealing of the sons of God, which you and I both know, is the day of the resurrection of our once mortal bodies, 
he's linking that to the resurrection of this planet. And if Paul's going to link the resurrection of this planet to the resurrection of the children of Adam and Eve, um, we are dealing with a biblical theology. And I'll track it in, in the book. A biblical theology that does not see this planet as disposable and looks at our environmental crisis the same way it looks at our orphan crisis, the same way it looks at our AIDS crisis. You and I both know that with every ounce of energy we have, we will never fix the orphan crisis. We won't do it. But that does not relieve us of the responsibility of giving every ounce of energy we can to rescuing every orphan we can. And that's how I look at the environmental crisis. It is my responsibility as a daughter of Eve and a child of the Almighty to take my stand and speak to his character as regards the orphan, the widow, and the tree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. I like adding that in. Um, what would you say to people of faith who feel paralyzed by the enormity of the environmental crisis and say, okay, I get, you, I get that this is important, I get that it matters to God, but I, I feel paralyzed. The first thing I would say is I'm right in there with you, and I feel paralyzed in many ways by it. Um, so I do the same thing with my environmental commitment that I do with every other aspect of my Christian commitment. I do the best I can. I make sure that for me and my house, we recycle. For me and my house, my water heater is turned down. For me and my house, I'm going to buy the solar panel over the gas guzzler. Um, and then I use my gifts, which are writing and teaching and speaking. Um, your gifts might be completely different. But I think the core issue for me is that the, that the God who showed up in Job chapter 38 and said to his suffering servant, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? His character loves this planet. And if I'm going to be someone who mimics his character, I have to love this planet too. Well, that's a great place to end. Professor Richter, thank, thank you, you so much for speaking with OnScript. Sure. Thank you. It's been a joy to be here. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.